The 1980s in Ireland wasn't exactly the best of times. Recession. We are living way beyond our means. The troubles in the north. Ever! Ever! And persistent emigration. What began at the start of the 80s is now the march of many. There wasn't much glamour around. And then, all of a sudden, the, America can put the game of basketball changed all that. At that point in time, there was no professional sport in Ireland. Dozens of American professionals came to play in Ireland. The American players were different in every way. And for a time, the sport of basketball was huge. They were like rock stars. I mean, it was like Elvis had arrived in town. They were just revered. Now, Ed Randolph has come in for Bonaparte, so that means it's... Very few of the players who came from America stayed here. But one who did was a man from Tallahassee, Florida, Ed Randolph. If we stay healthy, we might have a chance to win the league, but more like top four and uh, just have fun. Now in his late 50s and living in Bray, County Wicklow, Ed is still playing on at senior level. We're in the Dublin Men's Basketball League. At right now, I take it one game at a time and try to keep in shape at 58. <laughs> hey, I got my knees, I got my hips. I'm going to stay that way. Ed's sons, Neil and Darren, have both played top-level sport. Darren is the current number one goalkeeper for the Irish soccer team. Now, when your dad's a basketball player, you've got to deal with an aerial ball like that. Basketball has been played in Ireland since the 1920s. It began in the Irish Army. We had a team at the 1948 Olympics, and a national league was started in the early 1970s. Then, about 40 years ago, basketball enjoyed a boom in Ireland as a result of allowing American professional players into the sport. Because of their height, their physique, their athleticism, they were just fascinating for people. So people went to watch them. That's Timmy McCarthy, a former Irish captain and a leading player in Irish basketball during the 1980s. The sport just boomed and just you know, exploded. Crowds were in their thousands of games. Dundalk had a team, Ennis Diamond had a team, Trim had a team. Obviously, Dublin had teams. Ballina, Limerick, Waterford, Galway had teams. Then Belfast had a number of teams. It was spread throughout the 32 counties of Ireland. The excitement on the court was given extra glamour by the addition of the professional players brought over from the US by people like Fergus Woods. The Americans coming in while providing great entertainment themselves were also moving our players up to a different level because they were moving the intensity of the game up a level and everybody benefited. Ed Randolph was one of that first wave of Americans and while he played his part in making basketball popular here, Ireland would play an even bigger part in shaping Ed's life. To understand how Ed came to Ireland, we have to go way back to his upbringing in the USA. I'm a native of Tallahassee, Florida. It's in the northeastern part of the uh, state of Florida, not too far from the Gulf of Mexico. We had a large family, so it's six boys and two girls. I am the bambino. I am the youngest in the family. It seems like most of the black community would have been on the south side. 
and the more affluent would have been on the sort of the north, east, northwest side of, of Tallahassee. So, and, uh, and there were railroad tracks coming through like a part of Tallahassee, which is a bit, uh, you see it sometimes in the movies where there's always, you know, south side over near the railroad tracks, you know? And at one stage, you know, we could have had all eight of us in like a, a three bedroom porch type house, uh, wooden framed, tin roof. It was kind of run down, you know, because my mom and my father had separated and my mom ended up like working, you know, two or three jobs. And my father was around, he wasn't living with us. But um, if you were ever in trouble, like he would actually come by and sort of lay down the law and say, listen, you know, I may not be living here with you, know, you and your mom, but you know, I'm still your father. In the 1960s, America was still a very segregated society, particularly in the South, and that included the city of Tallahassee, Florida. I have a dream that one day... I vaguely sort of remember my mom being upset one day when uh, Martin Luther King would have been assassinated. Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. People get ready as a train of coming. You don't need no baggage, you just get on When Ed started school in Florida, education was still segregated there. Black and white children didn't all go to the same schools. A few years later, students were sent by bus to other parts of the city for integrated education. When integration first came in, I was probably going into what would be equivalent here of sixth class. It was mainly all black kids on the bus, and we would be leaving a black sort of neighborhood and a black school, and we went through the main city of Tallahassee out to the suburbs to a predominantly white area. In my first school, the books we had, they had previous names, you know, and they'd be scratched off. When I went to the white school, it was integrated, black and white mixed, brand new books, no name. The teacher said, oh yeah, put your name there, you know, you check it out of the library, put your name. It was the first time that I put my own name in the book, and it dawned on me that we were getting hand-me-down books. We got all the second-hand books at my black school, at, at the first school I went to. And I had a couple of teachers, never get Mrs. Spears, and Miss Webster, and they drilled it into us. Not for one second are you to feel inferior. So right away, I didn't have a chip on my shoulder. What those two teachers helped me to do was to go into an integrated school, mixed black and white, and sit in the classroom, and, and I felt confident enough to put my hand up and say, I know the answer to that question, as opposed to sit there and not say anything. Ed found his passion in sports, particularly playing basketball with his brothers. Heads up, heads up. The love started between my brother Sam and Curtis. We were the three youngest boys, and we, you know, and I used to watch them play. And it would always be like, say, in the area on the outdoor court, it would be the Randolphs versus the Knights, or the Williams or the Johnsons. Ed showed real talent in high school. 
We started to get good, and we started to go to state championships, and we traveled around the state of Florida. Here we go. My high school coach, Johnny Williams, used to always tell us, you never know who's watching you, so do your best. But right through the 1970s, issues of race continued to affect all areas of life, including sports. The time that was happening in America, there was still a bit of racial tension. And we played in some little small town high school sometimes where it'd be all white, and our fans didn't, didn't travel with us. Coach would just sit us down before the game. He says, now listen, you know where we're going. We're going to Trenton, Florida, or we're going to Ocala, Florida, and these places or whatever. It might be a bit hostile, the fans. And, you know, they're going to call you everything probably but a child of God. So listen, kill them with kindness and let your playing do the talking on the pitch. And he goes, after the game, we'll get on the bus quickly. <laughs> We'd have a, you know, a state trooper. You'd have an escort into the town and back outside the town. So we're talking some interesting times. While Ed was a teenager playing basketball around the towns of North Florida in the early 1970s, other young men from the States, only slightly older than Ed, were away in Southeast Asia, fighting the war in Vietnam. In the war today, American B-52 bombers dropped tons of explosives on dense jungles near Cambodia. One of those was from Ed's own family. My brother, Greg, he did two tours in Vietnam, and the famous newscaster, Walter Cronkite, every night my mom would be sitting there and she'd be praying. Seems the only realistic, if unsatisfactory, conclusion. This is Walter Cronkite. You know, she'd be praying that, you know, nothing would happen to my brother when he was, when he was over there. Second tour, got shot just above the knee. He chose the, he chose the wrong uh, sort of log or tree to get down behind because it was almost rotten, and I think a bullet came through part of the, the tree of the bark. Thank God, went straight through the knee, didn't hit the bone, and came out the other side. A couple of difficult months when he came back because um, the, the cold sweats, and my mom would be just holding him, talking to him when he'd wake up in the middle of the night screaming. You know, she worried a lot and she prayed a lot. But through time, eventually he got better. Um, the, the sort of the nightmares and the cold sweats, wake up in the middle of the night screaming and shouting, he went away. One way out of poverty and the effects of segregation for young men like Ed was a college sports scholarship. An opportunity to play basketball and get a good third level education. In 1979, Ed left the Florida sun behind and headed to Rhode Island, a couple of hundred miles northeast of New York City, where he played college basketball for Roger Williams University. 25 points. We'll be seeing an awful lot of him in the future, guaranteed. Ed showed real promise during his college career. I scored over 450 points or 500 points in one season, set a school record. Not too many guys play college basketball at any level and score 2,000 points. I think I was 27 points short of it. I think I scored 1,920-something points, you know? So it was a great, it was a great four years of college for me. That college scoring record stood for over 35 years. Timmy McCarthy says scoring ability makes you a valuable asset in basketball. Ed was a phenomenal scorer, and that was one of Ed's real talents. And the scoring prowess, particularly in America, was phenomenal. In the US, competition is fierce to make it into the big league, the NBA. 
Each year, the best college players are picked out by NBA teams after attending a series of trials. The Chicago Bulls pick Michael Jordan of the University of North Carolina. And like all professional sports, very few make it into the very top level. I got a trial. It was in Atlanta Hawks. It was in Atlanta. There's a recruitment uh, protocol that you go through to make it, to get there. And there are literally thousands I mean thousands of guys that are just as talented as you. The talent was just off the charts. I would like to think that I could have played in the NBA. For American basketball players just short of the top NBA standard, joining a European team was a viable way to have a professional career. European teams would pay for US talent, and for young men like Ed, it was a chance for adventure. There's a big history of players leaving America going to play in Spain and play in Italy way before any Americans came to, to Ireland. In the late 70s, the Irish Men's Basketball Super League decided to allow two foreign players on each team, as Timmy McCarthy explains. In 78-79 season, Paddy O'Connor from Killarney brought two American professionals in to support the 10 Irish players in the team. Bringing these guys in changed the game forever. This move brought a real flair and excitement to the game in Ireland. You saw a sport going from being a minority of minority sports to being in the top four sports in the country for a period of time. It was just special. Kennedy's taken the responsibility and he's got the two points and he's put aside into a six-point lead. The, the league exploded into 30 teams, three divisions. The top division, Division 1, had two Americans per team, and the second and third division had one American per team. So there was 40 American players spread throughout the country, bringing a new level of professionalism. Crowds started to get interested in it. Sponsors started to get involved. Basketball was the first sport in Ireland to have a sponsor's name on its jersey. It wasn't long before Ed Randolph caught the attention of Irish basketball coach and scout Fergus Woods in 1981. Well, I was very familiar with the uh, Rhode Island area in the United States. And I would go over there and I was friendly with a couple of ga influential guys in that area. The Irish Super League was an all-Ireland competition and Fergus signed Ed up to play for Sporting Belfast. I saw Ed play and made some inquiries from people and that filled me in this background. I offered Ed a position um, for the following year. Ed didn't quite realise where he was headed. I had agreed to go play, done deal, and I was talking to my brother, Curtis. Did they say Northern Ireland or the Republic of Ireland? And I was like, why? He goes, well, big difference there. If it's Republic of Ireland, no problem, down South Dublin. But he goes, if they say Northern Ireland, bombings, Protestant, Catholic, IRA, bad news up there, buddy. I was uh, ne never outside the United States. I mean, I had to go get, uh, <laughs> get an American passport. I didn't have a passport. In spite of the warnings from his brother, Ed Randolph made a life-changing decision to move to Ireland. Finally, we came through the clouds, and we, we landed, and we taxied in. And for some reason, the movie about um, Sherlock Holmes and, you know, I was in Hounds of the Baskervilles, I was like, cloudy or mist, fog, no glimpse of sun. I mean, a couple of hours ago, coming across the Atlantic, I saw the sun. 
arriving there in the airport and getting collected. I see sheep grazing outside on the old Swords Road. I'm like, Lord, what have I got myself into? Ed arrived into a troubled Belfast in 1982. He was just 22 years of age. Belfast hasn't seen violence like this for several weeks. Bombings and the troubles, none of our business. We want to play ball, get paid, you know, win, and that's it. In recent years, four people from the area have been killed by loyalist gunmen. The latest attack... But as time went on, you couldn't, you couldn't just not say or speak about the trouble because it was right there with you. And back over there, heading back, back, back down the Falls Road. Ed is making a return visit to meet Fergus Woods and to the streets he once walked to and from basketball games. On this road right here, specifically because it's Anderson Town, there would have been, at different times and different days, there would always would have been a, a patrol, you know. Fergus feels the Americans made a great contribution to the sporting life of Belfast during a difficult time. They were a great attraction. They were, they were bringing in the crowd. Like, I'm not going to fool myself in thinking we could have drawn the crowds that we did without the American players. And they had athleticism and moves that we hadn't seen. I mean, it was a big, big thing. They were taller. A lot of them, like Ed, were black players, which we didn't experience at that time. Ed wasn't the only black American basketball player on the streets of Belfast during the Troubles. There were other big men, like Ed's friend, Bruce Soup Campbell. Soup would have been six foot nine, big Larry, call him, you know, six ten, six eleven. You know, there would have been stares or comments and people coming over. And then some of the guys in the club would actually make jokes, you know, make sure you're not mistaken for a British soldier. Because they shoot you just as quick as they, you know. So we always made sure we were like, you know, high-fiving and speaking really loud, being typical Americans, you know. And we didn't want to be mistaken. Ed remembers the challenges of being so out of place in a part of the world where armed gangs and heavily armed security forces were a fact of life. It happened to us one night in Belfast. Bruce, Soup Campbell, was taking his girlfriend home. Some of the guys working in the pub had said, you know, that young lady that Soup's uh, seeing, her husband's interned. He's, he knows guys on H-Block. I'm like, Soup, and Soup's like, oh, forget about that. He was like, blowing it off. We left downtown Belfast and came up the Lisbon Road. A black Ford Cortina overtook us and sort of, you know, indicated, run it down, us, and cut across on us, like, pull over. Ed couldn't be quite sure who had stopped their car. These guys jumped out, like, with precision. The young lady at front actually blessed herself. And I was like, oh no, this is, this is it. As I slowly started to get down low in the back seat, getting ready to try to dodge bullets because your man had what looked like a handgun. The other guys that jumped out of the car had a very the small compact Uzi. He asked us a couple of questions, where you're coming from, where have you been? And they quickly signaled the guys, get back in the car, the driver did a big quick U-turn, burning rubber back up, heading towards the direction of the Lisbon Road, Malone Road. And we just, I was like, oh man, Sue, get me home, please. It was time for Ed to get out of Belfast. 
He played his basketball in the UK for a while, before arriving back to Ireland in 1984, to the home of the Claremont Admirals, Ennis Diamond, County Clare. In Ennis Diamond, we could have had up to 1,500 people, or 2,000, packed in there. Packed. This was the height of basketball's popularity in Ireland. You know, in places like Ennis Diamond, there was no real history of basketball. In the centres like Dublin and Cork and Belfast, there was. But it was just so different. It was up and down. It's score a minute, though you're defending attacking, and that excited people. Even in the lower divisions in the west of Ireland, the razzmatazz of the American game was all the rage. We had cheerleaders, we had music. So when the game was stopped, there was entertainment to keep the fans engaged. Health and safety wasn't as big an issue back then, so people were crammed in. You know, we would play games where all you could see were the four lines of the basketball court. And everything else was completely full with people behind the bleachers, all around the upstairs and downstairs. There was no room, standing room or sitting room, in the arena because it was such a popular sport. After Mass, you've seen little farmers and their tractors driving just to see, where's oh, that tall black fella? What's, you know, what's he about? And, oh, Jesus, basketball. Oh, what kind of game is that? Ed's teammates in Ennis Diamond were all amateurs. I, I just had a good admiration for the guys because they, these guys did a day's work. And they would come in and train three nights a week. But come game day, they would have to bring the van down and bring out the seating, bleachers, put them up. The, the local community center was just being built. They had a big, one of these big, big community draws that you see that everyone would put money into in, in, um, in the local town. And it was a real community atmosphere. It was in County Clare that Ed's life took a significant turn. You know, people went to the matches because that was, what else would you do on a Saturday night? If there was a match on, you'd go. It was where he met his future wife, who was then Anne Walsh from Kilchimac, County Mayo. I was working in Ennis Diamond uh, in AIB. The day he came to Ennis Diamond, he was brought in and I actually opened his account. There was no other black person uh, in Ennis Diamond, you can imagine. So, you know, he would he would have been known in, in, the, in the town, you'd, obviously. And he was the American. I was playing badminton one night and I twisted my ankle very badly and uh, it was so painful. Anyway, Ed came over. And I was there, you know, night in shining armor or a night there to assist and, and wrap it up in ice. It just, it just, it just happened by chance. That was our, our first meeting, so we went out after that. Mixed relationships were very much a rarity in 1980s Ireland. I mean, it was a very tricky time because you know, again, there weren't that many black people in Ireland. It was tough on my parents because they didn't... This was very unusual. Um, but, you know, my mom, God rest her, I remember the first time that Ed came home. She wanted to, I suppose, you know, show him that she was, you know, welcoming. So she made a dish that was made in the west of Ireland a lot, a box tea. And it was her signature dish. She loved to make it, you know, and it was something quite special for her. So Ed arrived and she presented him with this wonderful dish she was after spending time making. And he put jam on it. Well, she thought, OK, how do I deal with this? I mean, he's a guest in my house, but he's after putting jam on my on the box tea. So anyway, she, she you know, 
bit her lip and uh, but she kind of always spoke about it after how could he put sweet thing on that <laughs> but so that was it you know I mean you know they welcomed him and you know it's just of the time really in my life with Ed I've had one comment ever where someone said well, would you not find somebody you know of your own race or something similar to that whether people don't say it but think it I don't know um, it's not been something that has come up Ed was becoming fond of life in Ireland. I never forget this. The phrases in the West, how's she cutting? Or, you know, how's your hammer? You know, Cocked and ready. It's like all these little sayings. And I'll be honest, some of the best pints of Guinness I've ever had would have been drank in the Hinch, in, in, in this time. And it would have great crack. The first time I saw Christy Moore would have been up in Liston Barna at the, uh, the King Cora. You know. How is it going there? Everybody from Cork, New York, Dundalk, Gortahawk and Lenamadi. Here we are in the County Clare. I really learned a lot about Irish culture and Irish life when I, I was in the West and, and my dad, my time spent in, in Ennis Diamond. Although the memories are fond, because Ennis Diamond was in the lower divisions, the team didn't bring Ed the success he wanted. And like many of the American players at the time, he had to move on. Success at a big club would have to wait. My time came to an end inside Ennis Diamond at Claremont Admirals. And then I moved to Galway. And then I moved back to Dublin. And then I went to Dundalk and I, I played a season there with Team Tivoli. Okay, ready? We're moving, Eve, go. Life beyond a professional sports career needs planning. And Ed looked ahead to a coaching career early on. Okay, enough. We're going to play now. So your basket is here. Blue, your basket down there. We're going to hold court. And look here. Emily, between you and Beth, always make sure that you're on the side of who? Ed and Anne settled in Bray, County Wicklow, in the 1990s, where Ed began coaching in schools. By now, they had started a family, and their two young boys, Darren and Neil, often watched him from the sidelines. Yeah, both of the boys used to this. I used to bring it with me wherever I went. If I was coaching, I'd have one in the car seat. And some of the teams I coached, whether it's the AIB women's team, or Howard Knights, the girls were great because they'd always do a bit of babysitting and I'd try to keep the guys on the sideline, you know? It was at Colester, in the twilight of his career, that Ed finally won a league and two Irish National Cup finals, the second of which he won aged 48. Ed Randolph on his feet there, one of the bench players, the experienced man, saluting Michael Boys, excellent two points. By then, he was a super sub used wisely by the team. But what Calester did exceptionally well with Ed in that period was, so he would come on, play three or four minutes or five or six minutes, be able to match the American on the other team, the younger American, for that limited period, and then go off again. That was Ed Randolph, the 48-year-old, rebounding there. Most basketball players have their best years behind them by their mid-30s, which made the win all the more remarkable. Ed's son, Neil, himself a regular player in the men's Super League, remembers how special it was. I was in the, I remember in the crowd watching, I remember how happy he was, I remember screaming, um, the place was so loud. Well, for me personally, it was almost, I guess, the pinnacle of my career. It meant a lot to me, and it meant a lot to him, just because, like, it was something that he really, really, like, felt good about in his life, about winning that. 
Ed Randolph celebrating as well. What? Alongside Ed on one of those winning teams was another American veteran who stayed on in Ireland, Jerome Westbrook. We mentioned Jerome was 50 years of age. Ed is 48. Well, I knew I was going to retire after that. And so it was special knowing that it was going to be my last year at that level. While Ed's twilight days saw him win silverware with Colester, it also coincided with the game's decline. Basketball's popularity in Ireland had began to wane from the early 1990s onwards. Timmy McCarthy says the end of basketball's golden era coincided with the rise of the sport the Randolph family have been more recently associated with. In 89, the game changed radically. It went from the heights of the 80s where you had 6,000 people at going to games within a year to a couple of hundred people going to games. We've qualified for the World Cup. Go and compete. I think Euro 88 and Italian 90 brought soccer to a new level in, the, in this country. So now fans had an international experience. Ed's eldest son, Darren, would go on to follow in the footsteps of Packy Bonner and Shea Given as a hero between the posts for the Irish soccer team. But Darren's original dream was to step into Ed's large shoes. So Darren actually would have played right up from the time he was maybe 10, 11, 12, and uh, eventually ended up playing under 16 for Ireland. You know, so when I was younger, anywhere he went, I wanted to be there. So anytime he was, he was playing basketball, I was always there bouncing a basketball and somewhere in the background or running around the gym somewhere. He never kind of pushed me to, to basketball or football or any other sport. He just let me do what I wanted to do. He just said to me, be good in school. And I was the opposite in school, so as I always loved basketball, but my group of friends played football, so on the weekends that's just, you know, we'd go training, go playing the games, and then that would be it, so that's really the only reason why I played. But basketball wasn't the only sport where he was good with his hands. The older I got, people kept telling me I, was, I could have a, a good chance of, of going somewhere in football, but I was like, nah, I'll stick to basketball, thanks. But then when I got to about 14, 15, I thought, well, maybe I can I have a better chance in football than I would in basketball, so I made the change. Luckily, football's working out for me at a minute. And Darren would always have said it was sport, it was football. Um, I think it was either basketball or football, and the football kind of won out in the end. But there was that intention, uh, and then it came through. That change led Darren to a professional career as a goalkeeper. My mum and dad wanted me to stay in in school and go over a couple of years later, but you know, I had no interest in that. I wanted to go then and, and there and uh, you know, give it a go and see, see what would happen. And luckily enough, they, they let me go. Just like his father, Darren played in a succession of clubs in the UK. And it would be a decade later when Darren Randolph became a household name on his competitive debut. And Randolph sends it long. And Shane Long's in behind the defence. Shane Long against Moyer. After providing the assist for Shane Long's goal in a famous 1-0 win over Germany. A night his parents will never forget. Ed and Anne Randolph are now in that elite club of Irish soccer supporters who are there to cheer on family. Ledley thumping it, Randolph able to take it. Tonight they've been watching a fairly dull 0-0 draw against Wales. I thought the guys could have nicked it and um, could have gotten all three points, but 
I'm sure the boys will be happy with, with, with the point. I'm the kind of person who watches the game behind my fingers. I hold that anxiety, you know, for him and for the team. And when it gets close to their goal, I, I kind of turn away. I, I, I just can't watch it. Yeah. I watch the replays. <laughs> Fergus Woods, the basketball scout who brought Ed from America in 1982, now finds himself with a story to tell about the Irish soccer goalkeeper. Did I, did I tell you the story, Ed? Yeah. I was coming down the road in a taxi yep. a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And the taxi driver said to me, um, God, that was a great result. You know, the Republic got against uh, Germany. <laughs> and I yeah. said, yeah, and I said, and I, I played my part in that, you know. And the guy said, what do you, what do you mean? And I said, um, well, you know, the Irish goalkeeper had such a great game. Well, I'm kind of responsible for him being in this country. And he said to me, are you his father? <laughs> and I said, no, not exactly. But I said that I brought his father over here many years ago. Had his father not come here to play basketball, he would not have met um, mm -hmm. his wife, who is Darren's mother. So Darren would not have been Irish and would not be here and therefore would not have been playing in the game. Ed and Anne's younger son, Neil, now plays basketball for one of the top teams in Ireland, Temple Logue. You can hear how passionate Ed is about what he does and I think the boys have it. You know, Neil, he wanted to play basketball. He wanted to go to college in America um, and, like, he was going to get there. And he did. He got there. He played at a very high level in his college. He's come back, he's played in the Super League. And again, it's passion and drive that helps him to do that. And, and Darren as well, you know, kind of single-minded about what he wants to do. When Ed's not watching his sons on the sidelines, he's supporting his wife's singing career. She had played music professionally for a while, but took a step back when the boys were young. Tonight, she's gigging in their hometown. Bray. No, I'm a little bit, just a little bit nervous, but she's a real professional when it comes to singing, and uh, she may not think so. It's totally different than when, when Darren would be playing, or even Neil playing, because you're there, and you're, you're in the stadium, and even though right now I'm less than 15, 20 feet from her, I think she had it in the bag. Like tonight, I don't know. I think she did well, especially when people started to talk and to keep keep, keep it going and not to be distracted, you know? So, uh, yeah, did well. Come on, just sit there. An essential room in the Randolph family home is a basement gym. The walls are covered with medals and memorabilia, charting their success in sport. When did you buy, he had bought this ages ago. He's always been an avid at-home workout guy. So he'll come in here at night, normally at like 11 p.m. and do a bit of, bit of weight training in here. And he has a bike, and you hear this sound. That'd be, that's a very common sound of my whole existence in this house, hearing that. Because I'd always be in here. So all I'd hear is... 
The only person who can stand on the treadmill is Ann. So mom can use the treadmill, but since Darren, me, Neil, our heads have hit the ceiling. So like the treadmill doesn't get as much use as some of the other stuff. And like there's a power bag over there. In a corner of the room filled with old photographs and medals, Ed pulls out a poster showing the cup-winning Calaster team of 2008. Mary McLeese presented our awards at it. Uh, there's a couple of final medals here. And it's 2018, just this year. And I was in Santander playing in a, a basketball tournament over 50s. And we ended up being in the final, which we lost to a very good team from Amsterdam. Today, approaching 60, both Ed Randolph and Jerome Westbrooks the two basketball veterans of the 1980s are still playing for local teams in the Dublin League, alongside men half their age. In tonight's game, they were facing off on opposing sides. Yeah, and we, we bumped each other once or twice tonight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm, I mean, out there tonight, I'm actually trying to avoid guarding Ed because, you know, I love him so much now, I find it hard to hit him. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, you did. I got you one, though. We, we, did, bump, we bumped good down there. Yeah. I was like, oh. But, uh, so, yeah. Ed and Jerome are proving age is no barrier to playing competitive sports. All right, man, I gotta get out of here. Okay, look here, mind yourself. Safe trip back to the north side, buddy. Ed's local side, Bray Bullets, are coached by Cormac Connor. Like Ed, he played through the golden era of Irish basketball although he has a more nuanced view of the influence of American players on the game. A lot of people think that um, the Americans that were here at that time built up the game, but they also bankrupt a lot of clubs because clubs overspent. Um, my own opinion is that we put too much emphasis on, on the Americans because there are very few guys like Ed who actually come over here and make a long, real long-term contribution to the game. You have guys who come in and out for five months and all they do is keep Irish guys on the bench, whereas guys who come in and start coaching in the schools and making a, a general impact in the community, like Ed has done and Jerome and Lenny on the other team there, it's, a, it's, it's more of what you're looking for in order to help the sport to grow. When you look at Ed's career, I, I would see Ed as being an exceptionally successful coach. But as a basketball player with the talent he had, I think the unfortunate thing for Ed was that in his prime, he never played in Ireland with a big club. And that was just circumstances. He was absolutely good enough. He was definitely able to play with all the big guns. I mean, he won his titles in his 40s. You've got to think about it. He won his three medals in this country as a 40-year-old for two and as a 48-year-old for one. His longevity in the sport at least was rewarded with titles which reflected his talent. When he was a youngster playing basketball on the streets of Tallahassee, Florida, Ed Randolph could not have known where sport would take him. I were walking out to the promenade in Bright, Bray Seafront, and uh, just recently everyone had been coming down for a swim. And it's a, great, it's a beautiful backdrop with Bray Head in the background. A cooling, calming place to come over the last uh, couple of years. He has made a life and family through basketball and encouraged his sons to follow their passion to play and in a small way help give us some great memories. I'm just happy at, 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 my, at this stage of my life to be uh, you know, really content and no regrets and uh, life is good, thank God. And I still enjoy 
playing, and I love, I love the game of basketball. It's been good to me.